Mr. Darko. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, Ms. Farmer. I don't get this. Just place an X on the lifeline in the appropriate place. No, I mean, I, I know what to do. I just, I don't get this. You can't just lump things into two categories. Things aren't that simple. The lifeline is divided that way. Well, life isn't that simple. I mean, y who cares if Ling Ling returns the wallet and keeps the money? Has nothing to do with either fear or love. Fear and love are the deepest of human emotions. Okay. But you're not listening to me. There are other things that need to be taken into account here, like the whole spectrum of human emotion. You can't just lump everything into these two categories and then just deny everything else. If you don't complete the assignment, you'll get a zero for the day. Let's go over this again. What exactly did you say to Ms. Farmer? I'll tell you what he said. He asked me to forcibly insert the lifeline exercise cart into my anus. scares us and what saves us. This is the fear of God. Hello and welcome to a very special episode of the fear of God podcast. We are so glad you're here. For the second installment of our Umbrella series for the year, that of 2020-2020. To know exactly what it's all about, go back and listen to our precap episode at the end of January for some deeper insight. But basically, all of y'all are voting on your favorite horror films from the last 20 years, and we're covering one of them from each year. Speaking to you right now is one of your hosts, Nathan Rouse, and you know, Typically with me is fellow co-host Reed Lackey, but he was here a minute ago, and I, I got to be honest, y'all, he kind of bowed up a little bit, and he like accused me of lacking commitment to Sparkle Motion, and then he huffed off. Like, I, I, come on, I, 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 there are things I lack commitment to, but Sparkle Motion is for darn sure not one of them. But you know, we'll we'll figure it out. We'll we'll sort it out when he gets back. In the meantime, while he is off pouting somewhere, I have the distinct privilege of welcoming a longtime listener, first-time caller, our oft-referenced Foggin continuity guru, oh, and by the way, chief of staff for our sure-to-be-elected administration, Steve Beckley. Steve, welcome to the show, man. Hello. Finally. Hello. You're here. Welcome. Here. Hello. Yes. Thank you. This is going to be a good time, a good episode. <laughs> I am so glad you're here. Steve, I know you know this, but um, here at The Fear of God... We explore the holy and the horrific at the intersection of faith and fear, dissecting what scares us in order to find what saves us. Listeners, if that sounds like something you'd enjoy, come find us on Twitter, on Instagram, join the Facebook group for some lively discussions around horror and genre-themed media, books, and film, some of which you can find Steve's curatorial work 
in uh, the letterbox.com fear of God. I just love the word curatorial. <laughs> that took a, little, took a little work to say. But at the fear of God, we explore. We don't explain except for right now when I'm going to explain that you can listen to the Fear of God podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Overcast, CastBox, some others I'm not familiar with, but that you might be that you can tell us about. While you're at it, subscribe to us on your favorite platform. And by the way, leave us a five-star rating and or glowing review. Uh, To find us on the web, visit thefearofgodpodcast.com, where you'll find an episode archive and be able to purchase merchandise from the show. By the way, Steve, thank you for uh, modeling some of our merch. You're welcome. The old merch perch page. Um, uh, You can see folks like Steve and various other fellow foggers in their Fear of God merch on T-shirts, mugs, cell phone cases, pillows. We also have the one and only Read I'm Not Afraid Anymore Lackey. Read your back, buddy. Hey, man. I'm not afraid anymore. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I love it. I love it. Uh, Steve won't know. Listeners won't know. I'm not afraid anymore has been a running gag (laughs) for 20 years of Reed and Nathan (laughs) friendship. So it's Reed is my more than just friend and podcast co-host. Reed is also my running mate this election year. And guys, I don't know if y'all heard. But uh, Super Tuesday just happened, and and we won. We won. So we won. that's this- really exciting, Steve. I hope you're prepping yourself for <laughs> chief of staff. You know that's a big deal. That's a big job. Yeah. Oh my yeah. gosh. Yeah. We wouldn't. We wouldn't, <laughs> we wouldn't trust it to anybody else. I tell you. <laughs> no, no. Um, Reed, welcome to the party. Uh, Thank Steve you. Is pre- present with us. You know, you you got a little huffy before he got here, and so I just wanted well, to. You know, let you know. Yeah, you know, I there are so many things that I want to tell you now that I know you're secretly vo- voting for Dukakis, but um, mm-hmm. but right. meanwhile, we're just going to move right past that. Steve, it is so great. Well, Steve's here to he's here to audition for Sparkle Motion because you got so you know kind of high horse. I wondered it. who that was playing Notorious in the background. I was like, man, is this song yeah, just stuck yeah. in my head? No, no, no. Oh, these Those are, are some <laughs> some pretty good dance. These moves, are some Steve sick was, dance. Moves. Oh yeah, Absolutely. I have commitment. So. <laughs> You do, you do, you do have commitment. You do. You, sometimes more than us, I think. But um, so, Reed, you're back. We are continuing today our second installment of 2020, 2020. Um, and and Steve, I know you know this, but uh, Reed is bearing the mantle these days of not just Reed, um, not just Riri, but he is, in fact, these days lackey the listicle, my occasionally listless list making lackey. And I'm hopeful, Reed, that you might be able to kind of. Uh, outline a little bit for our listeners how they can participate in 2020 2020 absolutely so ladies and gentlemen the the what we need you to do what we want you to do what i think you will have a lot of fun doing is go to the fear of god podcast.com click on the banner up at the top that says 2020 2020 you will see as of this recording as of this airing you will see the years 2003 through 2008 are available for your voting consumption. We want you to go there. We want you to pick all of the films, all of your uh, favorite films from that year. We need your participation. So please go to the website, click on that. It's super easy for you. Uh, You will know which surveys are still available and which ones are not by which years have films underneath them and which ones don't so if there's not a film underneath it then we still need your vote so go to the fear of god click on that banner 
Make your vote count, and we will be counting down your top ten favorite horror films of each of those years as we make our way through this series. The first wave, the first phase of yeah. this is going to be through 2008, and uh, we are very, very excited. We've already just one entry in. We've already just sort of kicked the door down. <laughs> yeah, I was I was going to ask, uh, you know, Steve, how did you enjoy uh, last week's Shadow of the Vampire episode? <laughs> oh, my God. That was... Wasn't it crazy? Spellbinding. Oh, was it? <laughs> So crazy. <laughs> what a sport. You're oh. a good sport, Steve. Steve oh, no, 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 no. You said that wrong. Uh, Steve, you're a good man. You're a good man. You're a good man, oh. Steve Bickley. Indeed. Oh. Well, how weird it is to actually be able to say that to you. You're a good man, Steve Beckley. I feel like I'm feeling some real deja vu. Well, there. no, wait a minute. Wait a minute. You know what? Steve, we don't our, yeah. we know you, but our listeners don't know you very well. We need to we need to let them get to know you. Do you mind if we uh you know if we kind of put you through your paces for a minute and get a, get to know you a little sure. bit? Um, sure, sure. So uh, any any guest that we have on here, we like to ask them a, a very brief uh, bevy of questions. So I'm going to start by saying uh, a brief bevy is a really great phrase, yeah. like cellar door, Isn't it? like brief oh. bevy kind of ranks up there. It, it does at least second place behind cellar door. Um, so uh, first of all, Steve. Like, what's your sort of intersection with uh, the horror and or faith community, either or, uh, you know, and, and maybe give us a couple of your favorite horror films that uh, that you like. And then, uh, yeah, yeah, just tell us a little sure. bit about what you're into. Um, I live in suburban Philadelphia in Pennsylvania. I'm a, I'm a Christian. Uh, I am a Protestant. Uh, I, I attend a Presbyterian church. Nice. Um, I'm married with one child, a nine-year-old son. Um I watched some horror on uh, TV. I guess like read before I was old enough for it, and I uh, kept going <laughs> from there. I think I, myself and my father and my family were really into science fiction, and that might have been my bridge to horror um, when I started out. Uh, I watched films like Aliens and The Fly uh, and yes. the like, uh, and then I got into like Friday the Thirteenth films. Um, so there were some things that were more sci-fi oriented that I didn't have to watch in secret sure, like at night. Sure, sure. Others, <laughs> others that I did, I got into uh, Joe Bob Briggs and oh, and Joe really Bob, that. that's right. Yeah. You are a fan of Joe Bob, yeah, <laughs> dude. I love Joe so, Bob. Supposedly the new. I'm sorry to cut you off, but supposedly the new sure. season is coming back this summer. There's going to be another season of his uh, his uh, last drive-in show on Shutter, which I'm super excited for. Very, very excited. Yeah, I've only been uh, subscribing to Shutter since. Uh, Tigers are not afraid, so oh, I'm still catching nice. up with all of that. <laughs> That's a great service. Yeah, they're, they're so really yeah, cool. um, I was I was into Friday the Thirteenth, even Friday the Thirteenth the series. Do you remember that? Oh my gosh! Yeah. What's so crazy about Friday the Thirteenth the series that listeners may or may not know? If you never watched that show, had nothing to do with Jason. Like it, it, like it was the right. the premise was it was like this this sort of novelty shop, like a shop of all these curiosities, and then they would bleed off in these little anthology stories. But some of them were really creepy. Like there were there were almost more like the X Files. You know? It was. Yeah. And uh, it, it's funny. I think that I think that Steve Steve just was trying to like ingratiate himself a little bit just there. So it's you succeeded. It's oh yeah, I was well I was it. and still am a big X Files fan and uh, yeah, and awesome. Lost fan and uh, oh nice. man, you're at home, man. You're Welcome in good company. Home. Um, well, yeah. well, so so <laughs> I, I have to ask. Um, so this is a question that Nathan loves to ask, and I love to hear the answers to. So what scares? Steve Beckley, what what are you afraid of? Um, yeah, I, I was thinking about this a lot, and uh, there's a difference between what scares, what's scary, and then what's just uncomfortable or mm. discomforting. 
So I, first, a lot of things came into my mind or what, what's, what was uncomfortable. But uh, yeah, like things like crowds. I don't like being in crowds. Ooh, I'm yeah. kind of an introvert, so I don't like being <laughs> just crowded. Um, not having anything to say, awkwardness. I'm always afraid of just being tongue-tied. Mm, um, mm. So yeah, I hope, hopefully that doesn't come up too much here in this podcast. But, <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, Stay focused. A fear, of, <laughs> a fear of being watched or a fear of being lost. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. Speaking of lost. Um, so that's why I prepare a lot before I go out on a trip or an excursion. I, I always look at the maps and study everything. But then when it comes to like, r- things I'm really scared of, I was thinking about big, big animals. Oh, oh, huh. okay, yeah. Bears or yeah, snakes, poisonous things, dangerous animals, big jumping, big jumpy dogs or yeah. horses. Like, oh, okay, things that, gotcha. And yeah. not not when you're in a, at a zoo or or when it's behind a fence, but when you're up close to them. Yeah, when you encounter uh, them in the in the wild, as it were. Yeah, yeah understand. Like, do you remember the? Movies, movie like uh, Grizzly Man, or oh, uh, man. oh my gosh, yeah, <laughs> oh my or gosh. there was even a more recent horror movie, like it's called uh, Backcountry. Was that a, you a saw Backcountry, dude? A bear that was stalking people, and yeah. and and Backcountry had one of the most. I mean, I saw The Revenant as well, and Backcountry had oh, yeah. one of the most gruesome bear maulings that I have ever seen yeah. in a film. It was it was brutal. <laughs> oh my gosh, yeah. I love how you qualified that with. There's also another bear mauling movie, you know. It's, like, it's a it's a very narrow no, no, no. genre, but it does have a few more. And you know, and make no mistake, Steve and I have ranked them. We have got them. <laughs> we have got them in our lists. <laughs> I'm sure. I'm so, sure. So I must. Uh, I must say, Steve, uh, hearing hearing how many things you are afraid of, and and you are you are quite at home here at the fear of God. But I would say on the exercise lifeline, you are pretty far over to the left. You're the Steve Beckley X is pretty far over to the left in the fear camp on the uh, the exercise lifeline between fear and love. But maybe we'll we'll bring you out of that a little bit. We'll we'll encourage you a little bit. <laughs> Maybe I'm more. I don't know. Maybe I'm actually more towards the middle. It's just maybe you're just just because I was being asked. I was listing a lot of things. Oh, that makes uh, sense. Okay, I'll I'll take that. As Steve would say, I'm not afraid anymore. (laughs) Speaking of lists, Reed, how how you feel about uh, you know queuing up the old best of 2001? Because I don't know if you're keeping score at home, but that's where we're at. The top. This was a whopping. 19 years ago. Oh my god. I, I don't like yeah. I really don't like that that's real. I feel like this series is going to feel better as we move forward in it. Um <laughs> so um we are going to count down right now for you. The wait is over. Your top 10 favorite horror films of 2001. Steve as our uh guest, I'm going to invite you to kick us off with uh number 10. Uh, let us know what that is, and then Nathan, if you want to pick up with number nine, and we'll rotate out that sure. way through the list. So uh, go ahead and uh, kick us off, Steve. Number ten is David Lynch's Mulholland Drive. That is nice. well, and what's interesting about that is I, I don't remember. I remember seeing it, and I can remember some pretty distinct things about it, but I don't think I ever classified it as a horror film. I mean, it definitely is when you look it up online and, and see sort of the classifications it falls under. Um, but uh, I don't remember it as such. Yeah, I think I would agree with you there. Um, Nathan, have you ever seen it? A, yeah, I, it's just a weird movie. I have not. But... It is such a weird movie, as so many of David Lynch's films <laughs> yes. are. It is it is a really bizarre film. Uh, the main thing I remember about it is that killer 
acting audition scene that Naomi Watts did where she like subverts all of the things that every other actor in contention for the role is doing. And she delivers this just spellbinding uh, sort of making all of the opposite choices in a really captivating way. And uh, that's the main, my main memory of taking away from Mulholland drive. It's a great scene. Uh, Next up on the list uh, that of number nine is from hell directed by the Hughes brothers. Now this is Johnny Depp. Is that right? Yes. Uh, no, you are not. Johnny Depp and uh, old Ian Holm, old Bilbo Baggins, uh, huh. is in it as well. I don't. I don't think I've seen. I, I've only of this list, just scanning it now for almost the first time. I've seen the top three, and I, I think that's it. Actually. Oh wow! Okay. So all right. Yeah. This movie here from Hell is the only one on the list that I haven't seen. Oh, that's right. That's right. Yeah, you've seen most yeah. of this list. Um, so I guess that means Nathan, as we're you know. Steve, what Nathan doesn't know is I really came up with the concept of 2020 because I was so sick to death of him seeing top 10 lists before I did. So um, <laughs> so uh, you will not win on any of these lists, uh, Mr. Nathan Rouse. I'll just let you know. Um, no, That'd be a lot more work than I need than I want to put out. Yeah, yeah you're right. <laughs> I will just auto-concede to you. So uh, just a brief word about From Hell. It is a, a film about the, the hunt for uh, Jack the Ripper. And uh, I honestly, I can I cannot remember it well enough to know how I felt about it. I think I was kind of middle of the road about it. But um, but but yes, your number number nine favorite horror film. Number eight is a film I remember far better than I want to uh, directed by the one and only Ridley Scott of alien fame. It is Hannibal starring Julianne Moore and Anthony Hopkins reprising his role as Hannibal Lecter. Uh, I did not like this film. Personally speaking, I do not remember caring for it. But uh, how did you? Uh, so Nathan, I don't think you've seen it. Uh, Steve, how did you? Now is this sequel? Because Red Dragon is prequel, right? Yes. So Red Dragon is the film that was made after those two, but is a prequel chronologically right. in the in the events. Uh, but Hannibal is the one that does follow the events of Silence of the Lambs narratively gotcha. and uh, production wise. Steve, what do you think about Hannibal? I remember really liking Hannibal, but I haven't rewatched it again in a long, long time. I do own it on disc, so I might rewatch it again. Let me know. Yeah, yeah, let me know how you think what you think about it when you see it again. I remember actively disliking it because I felt like it was um, a bit ham-fisted. Uh, that climactic scene involving, uh, I'll just say, Ray Liotta's cranium uh, really mm-hmm. uh, just sort of put a, a bad taste in my mouth. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> a good taste in Hannibal's mouth, but a bad taste in mine. Um, so, yeah, if you Ew. if you revisit it, let me know uh, Let me know what you think of it. All right, number seven, uh, Steve, what you got? Sure. Number seven is, is in the fog canon. That's, or is, no, no, this one's not in the fog canon. This is Jason X. Yeah. I was mistaking it with another one. Yes. It's not Freddy versus Jason. It's Jason X. That's right. Yeah. That's right. So listen, and, uh, you're a fan of the Friday the 13th series, so you have to yeah. tell me, how do you feel about Jason X? Yeah, I saw this one once. Uh, it was a number of years ago now, but uh, it, it's uh, kind of a so bad, is it so bad it's good kind of movie. It absolutely uh, is. Yes, yes. <laughs> and does a lot of callbacks to uh, previous films in the series. Um, <laughs> my, my favorite. But there's some, there's some, uh, some very fun kills in it, though. Oh, there's great. There's the one yeah. where he like 
uh, Nitro like freeze, yeah. freezes the person and then smashes them. The freezes the person's face and then shatters. <laughs> <laughs> One of my favorite things in it though is when they try to distract Jason with the hologram sequence and they're like, no, 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 we're gonna go back to the eighties. And these two women are just standing there and look at him and said, let's do drugs and have premarital sex. <laughs> it's, it's pretty silly and pretty That's campy. A great part. It's you know what, <laughs> Nathan, you just. Take why don't you why don't you I go know, ahead and take know. us into number six while you while you're so chatty there? Uh, okay, all right. So number <laughs> six on the list uh, is session nine. Number six is session nine, directed by Brad Anderson. This is the sequel to sessions one through eight. Yes, um, far you know, far less known. In a really, yeah. yeah. Well, you know, but remarkably stood out amongst the pack. <laughs> I mean, like it's it's hard once you get to a ninth in a franchise to really make it yeah. count. And they did it. Yeah. Brad did it. He pulled it off. Yeah. Good for him. <laughs> um, so I, I've seen this. This is a film that is a bit of an indie horror film darling. Like lots of people love pointing this movie out to folks who have not heard of it or seen it. And I will admit that I you know, am, am somewhat in that camp. I don't champion the film the way I've heard some people do, but um, it frequently winds up on those lists of like, Hey, some of the best horror films you've never heard of that you need to seek out and and watch. Um, and I remember really, really liking it. It's a sort of a low budget, uh, kind of a, a chamber piece about some people clearing some asbestos from a warehouse and then crazy psychedelic things uh, are, are afoot. Um, uh, Steve, have you, you've seen this one. How did how did you like I it? I saw this once. Yeah, I remember it, it was very affecting, very spooky when uh, each of those workers goes off into different rooms oh and my hallways. Gosh. And yeah. Yeah. They're all by themselves. Uh, I was thinking whether that is one of my fears, if I'm afraid of being alone in a big place, but I don't think that really affects me. Mm, okay. I, don't know. <laughs> I think that's, maybe that's also because uh, uh, introvert, and I don't mind being by myself. So, <laughs> yeah. you know, I, just feel, I just feel comforted by Now, place that said, if you're sure, alone sure. in a big place with a bear, then oh yeah, that's yeah. just hitting all the quadrants. <laughs> now we have a problem. Um, Thank you. All right, Reed. I, I I want you to say number five, but it is occurring to me I have seen number five, so I'm at four on this list. Oh, okay, gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, because uh, yeah. we actually covered it, so it would be difficult yep. for you to have had the discussion That's you had true. about it without us covering it. So I have not, in fact, ever <laughs> talked about a film on the show that I've not, at least in some measure, seen, even <laughs> if I may have dozed through a portion of it. That's. I'm looking at that, you, mummy. That is true. That is true. So uh, this may have been the one that Steve uh, earlier thought was uh, in Fear of God canon, which it is. Uh, number five, directed by the one and only Guillermo del Toro, is The Devil's Backbone, uh, which we did have a full episode about when we covered um, del Toro, Toro, Toro. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> you just get a little tickled doing I that. Did. <laughs> it was so, I'm like, we're so we're so clever. Um, so, <laughs> yes, so, that's what we are. Yes. So, uh, so the Devil's Backbone, directed by Guillermo del Toro. It uh, go back and check out our episode on that. Uh, it is your number five favorite horror film of 2001. Uh, Steve, what's number four? Jeepers Creepers. Jeepers Creepers. That's. Uh... Yes. The creeper, right? Yes, the, that is the, the villain. Yeah, the creeper is the villain. Uh, Nathan, you haven't seen this? No, I, I have not seen Jeepers Creepers, <laughs> but I have heard the song that follows with "Where'd You Get Those Peepers?" That's true. Yeah. It, it is a it is a crucial uh, element of the film. Um, but uh, I would expect no uh, less. So, I I have been debating the entire time that this list came out. I have been debating about whether or not to say this because. This is not funny. This is not a joke. 
we are going to struggle a little bit to know how to handle this. But I am uh, I, I cannot mention this film without mentioning this truth. Um, I used to love this film, and my memory of it. Uh, I am. I was quite fond of it. I think it was a great sort of creature feature that is uh, a, a really tight thriller, uh, very effective. And then I found out that the director is a convicted uh, pedophile, and it really upset me to the degree that I find I have now severely complicated feelings about this film. I love that you just like shamed everyone no 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 no. that's not my intention that's not my intention but it's like it's one of those things that like everybody uh all of you who voted for this and like it just guess what you're you're idiots no 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 because hear me like that's the thing it's like it's one of those things i almost wish i didn't know because i think this film is quite good and i think it's it, it makes perfect sense that it would be as high if not higher on this list by merits of the film and i believe that information about the director is pretty buried in terms of like it's available if you know do you do any degree of digging about it but if you're not searching for it there's not like this big campaign to excise the jeepers creepers franchise from the world but um it just uh yeah it it just uh did you did you was there a reason during an arnold phase that you had to say the phrase jeepers creepers because i feel like i just heard it in your voice <laughs> jeepers you creepers <laughs> 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 wow wow Reed, all right have, have you seen the sequels i saw the jeepers creepers sequels before the creature feature jeepers creepers yeah before before any of that prior knowledge i have seen uh the second one i actually saw the second one in the theater because of how much i enjoyed the first one um i, I found out the information that i just shared prior to the release of the third one so have not i, I mm-hmm. you know haven't haven't seen that one yet, but uh, but I have seen the uh, the first two. And I, again, I mean, they, it, Jeepers Creepers is a fun movie. It's a great creature feature. It's got some really effective scares. Um, it, I mean, it's a really well-crafted film. I, I wish that I was better at uh, compartmentalizing what I know about the director yeah. from, from the film. The plot of the movie, it starts out seem a little derivative of Duel. Do you remember Duel? Yeah, Spielberg's yes. film. Oh yeah, absolutely. but then it just goes off in another direction about halfway through. Completely but. to like to like bonkers like full blown monster film as opposed yeah. to just this subversive like brother and sister team trying hard to get away from a kind of a creepy guy. But uh, <laughs> that's it. Yeah, there was a. That's, that's why. That's it. The creepy guy. He's a creepy he's guy. Because oh, it was the monster mash. It was. It was that the was monster where, mash. That was where it happened. We got to do that again. That was fun. Uh, <laughs> speaking of doing things again, number three on best of 2001 listener voted list of listicles is The Others, directed by Alejandro Aminabar. Um, I have seen the others, so I can chime in here. You and I watched um, it together, actually. Did we? Yeah. That's all. That's sweet. Um, <laughs> last week, I referenced my brother and I doing the Max Shrek hand motions right, right, right. Uh, as Willem Dafoe. My sister and I sometimes, because there's a really odd line delivery in the others, and it's when uh, Nicole Kidman is seeing... Uh, uh, she's attempting to flee the house, I think, and encounters her husband come home, mm. right? Mm-hmm. It might be a dream state. It's been a while since I've watched the films. So I don't remember if it's the dream state or what, but he just goes, sometimes I bleed. 
and it's just a really weird line delivery okay. and so, so that <laughs> just okay just kind of comes up you know every now and then yeah uh I, it's really funny but no i do love the others yeah um i remember this is our house yeah i remember not liking it for reasons that i wonder if they would still hold up because i remember not liking it because i viewed it at the time we saw it as very antagonistic towards faith um which i know now is the actual perspective of the director um and uh and i remember that at the moment just where i was in 2001 and viewing it uh severely hindered my ability to enjoy the film i remember it being very well made but uh i wonder if uh, if that would still hold up as a detractor from my ability to enjoy it, uh, if I if I oh, watch it again, I mean, yeah, you're you're much more of a heathen these days. Wow, so that's probably so. Yes, okay. Be like, I mean, yeah. Here we are, three years <laughs> into this romp. Jeepers creepers! Oh my gosh! The others that's in the lost universe. Nice. Oh yes, yes it is. Yeah. It is. Utters, so, utters. Um, that is a others, utters. That is a that is a horror <laughs> film I could get behind right there. Is the the yeah. others from the island? Um, cool. I'm so privileged that I get to be the one to say number two because I love number two so much. Um, okay, so <laughs> number two, <laughs> we're gonna ignore that one. <laughs> wow. Um, directed by <laughs> Bill Paxton. Uh, we covered this uh, quite a bit of uh, time ago, uh, early in our days of Fear of God. Uh, it is Frailty, which is a film, uh, if you've listened to that episode, and if you haven't, go back and listen to it because it's it's fun episode. Um, Frailty is a favorite horror film of mine. It's a film I highly regard, highly respect, and and massively love. Um, so Frailty has actually the distinction in, uh, you know, continuity guru Steve Beckley can you know, be present for this is, has the distinction in fear of God lore of being the episode that taught us to pivot at the time. What was David S pumpkins yes. to the end of the episode? Yes, it's true. Because I think we, hmm. we may have done on the front end of talking about the film at all. Right. Yeah. I can't remember. Yeah, we at this did. Point. Yeah. Um, but Reed and I debriefed after that conversation because so much of my, I still don't hold the film in, in the similar esteem as you do, but I, I got a lot out of that conversation, such that I would have changed some of my ratings. And so, absolutely, that yep. conversation is is to thank for that. That's why we do ratings at the end, is all because of frailty. Yeah, frailty, that was yep. episode thirty-one. Nice, nice job. That's- nice. Oh. It was the following episode split that you started having scoring of. And ratings of your films. So. Ah, yes, it's exactly right. Yeah, there it I is. Believe you went that long without doing it. Yeah. See. All right. All right, Steve, you have the distinction of telling us about the number one top ten horror film of two thousand one. Take it away, brother. That would be Donnie Darko, directed by Richard Kelly. Da da. Yes. So, um. We're going to have an extended conversation about this film in particular, but before we do, what what does everybody think about this list? I know, um, Nathan, you might be a little inhibited uh, by some of that, but it... (laughs) 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 But I'll take my microphone and go home. Um, I'm not afraid anymore. Um, So, uh, as as we kind of discussed last week, like, I did find it... So, last week's winner... 
the the number one film uh, was American Psycho. Um, go back to hear the entire list and listen to last week. But the number one film was American Psycho. I found it interesting uh, in real time that American Psycho was also kind of a satirical send up of of eighties pop culture, as in many ways is Donnie Darko. Uh, so I do find it interesting that those two films back to back are the uh, are the top horror film of each of their respected years. Um, but what's interesting to me about this list is I'm seeing a lot in the list of like favorites. I'm seeing a lot of uh, big monstrous horror films. Jason X, uh, Hannibal uh, is kind of over the top, Jeepers Creepers. Um, and then that's also, part- yeah, but it is also um, <laughs> partnered up with some films that are a bit like Devil's Backbone and Session 9 are kind of cut from the same cloth in that they are, uh, films about isolated communities and spectral things happening in those isolated communities. Um, and so uh, that's just interesting to me. I know 2001, we had firmly gotten past the Y2K scare. Uh, we, <laughs> Many of us were like, okay, well, well, what now? You know, the 2000s uh, were kind of the first time that we, we didn't really know how to start defining our decade versus like the 80s and the 90s and the 70s and stuff. Um so nothing really scary happened in 2001. Did it? Not at all. Uh, right. So what's interesting? <laughs> well, it's, about funny that, you, though... it's funny you say that because I just looked up when did Donnie Darko release, and it's actually in January. Yeah. But it will be interesting. I don't know where these lists are going to fall. How and if 9/11, at least in ethos, plays into what gets made horror yeah. genre or otherwise. You know what I mean? That'll be interesting to see if that yeah. starts to. I thought that up. was part of the trivia behind Donnie Darko was that it was delayed because of 9-11. It was supposed to be released like right around that time in September. That's yeah, because, because I... I um, no, it's, it was it released in January of 2002? Mm, I mean... I don't, I don't think so, but... Uh, it was screened at the Sundance Film Festival on January 19th, 2001, before okay. leave, receiving a limited theatrical release on October 26, 2001. That might be what you're thinking of, Steve. October, yeah. yeah. So it had a limited theatrical release in October... That must have gotten pushed because of 9-11. It did. And because, as you know, anybody who's seen the film will know, is because a pivotal plot point involves a plane crash. And so much of the imagery of the marketing had a plane crashing as its central image. And so they had to pull it following 9-11. And the trivial bit that I read said that, that they believed that that hurt the ultimate... Hmm. Uh, box office for the film uh, because not because people didn't want to go see a movie because of 9-11 but just having to pull the marketing left it with Mm -hmm. very little additional advertising so not a lot of people even knew where to go see it or that it was out as a result Um, one thing before we move on into this more specifics of Donnie Darko Nathan can you uh, do what we did last week and uh, pull up our do what you do well I did last I did, week. I, I didn't quite ask for the song but you know the but you know uh, you do Why you don't you do what you do <laughs> this I like that you just said you do you and last week you're like you do you boo like quoting Jesus you know it's just <laughs> it's gonna be the new thing uh, okay a great so moment. uh so yes last week um to to keep things lively and popping um in the real real time and I haven't looked at this list I'm looking at the tab because I I went to it but then drifted away before it popped up. So we wanted to look at what were the top five grossing films uh, 
at the box office in 2001. Now, this is worldwide box office at Box Office Mojo. This is a fun list. All right. So, <laughs> number five. Wow. Uh, number five is Ocean's Eleven. Good okay. Play. Mm, okay. Uh, mm. Came in at $450 million worldwide. Number four on the list of worldwide box office for 2001 uh, not to be confused with the person who played Count Orlock in Nosferatu, it is Shrek. Uh, the ah, first ah. Shrek film grossed $484 million plus. Number three, In Fog Cannon, uh-huh. oh, oh, Monsters, oh. Inc. Uh, oh, very uh, nice. From very Funny nice. or Die last fall, $528 million, Uh <laughs> Interestingly... The top two beget or began rather uh, some pretty substantial franchises here. Number two on 2001 worldwide box office is The Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring. Oh, wow. um, ah. and <laughs> interestingly, this is going to be interesting to, to chart as we go through these. Last week's episode, Mission Impossible 2, was the top grocer of 2000 at and capped out at like 500 and a half million. Uh, mm-hmm. Lord of the Rings, which is the number two film of 2001, grossed 880 million. Wow, it's so a substantial jump. Yes, um, and the number one uh, similar spirit of Lord of the Rings is Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone, oh, uh, which wow. came in yeah. at just under a billion with 974 wow. million dollars. Oh my gosh! And so, I, what will be interesting to see is I now wonder. As the Harry Potters and the Lord of the Rings, like, are we going to start seeing those franchises continue to dominate the box office? Which, is, which would be understandable. Sure. Um, so, but that's yeah, that's that's really uh, that's really fascinating. Uh, so, there's a Tolkien as, as in the effort to kind of pivot us into Donnie Darko more directly mm-hmm. and specifically and specifically into trivial bits. So, it is a moment in the film when uh, Drew Barrymore's character introduces the idea that cellar door was the most beautiful phrase in all the English language as quoted by, she said, a famous linguist. The famous linguist she is referring to, and why she doesn't directly quote it, I don't know, was in fact J.R.R. Tolkien, who uh, had said that cellar door uh, is the most beautiful phrase in all of the English language, which I found uh, very interesting. Yeah. Um, I've got some other bits of trivia here, but Nathan, I know you're prone to do uh, research these days. Do you have any particular trivial bits, Steve? You as well. Do you have anything you collected along your along the way in your reading? Um, yes. So one that is just fun and indicative of so much. I have a, a group of coworkers here who think Mark Wahlberg hung the moon and is kind of God's gift <laughs> to the, uh, the the acting profession. So. Of other actors who were at least interested in or under consideration for the character Donnie Darko, um, Vince Vaughn reportedly yeah. turned down the part of Donnie due to his age. Uh, Jason Schwartzman was strongly mm-hmm. considered, uh, but dropped yeah. out due to scheduling. But the greatest is Mark Wahlberg. And like this is so representative. I actually like Mark Wahlberg, the person he's fine, whatever, as an actor. But it says Mark Wahlberg was interested in the part. But apparently was only willing to play the part with a lisp. <laughs> because that, ladies and gentlemen, is acting. It's, <laughs> it's like adopting some random affectation and being like, what, what? I've got a lisp. It's, I'm, I'm acting. 
Oh my gosh. Cheese um, and crackers, Mark. Cheese and crackers. Did you hear oh who the first choice <laughs> <laughs> Did you hear the first choice to play the dad was? Did you read that? I did. Yeah. Was Andy, du- Andy Dufresne himself. Mm-hmm. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. That would have worked. Yeah. I would have loved to see him in this role. I love the actor who does play. I was going to say, the he's dad. great. Like, the, yeah. yeah, the the actor, I'm going to be heaping a ton of praise on uh, both the mother and the father, uh, Holmes oh, yeah. Osborne and uh, Mary McDonnell. But, uh, Steve, you got any trivial bits for us? We just kind of round well, I think the casting of the film in general was, I loved it. I mean, all these great character actors, uh, and Mary McDonnell, I'm a big fan of BSG. Mm-hmm, yeah. Uh, Laura Roslin. Um, wow, that's hilarious. Because, <laughs> yeah, yeah. you know, I, when BSG was on, I, I, I actively and avidly watched it. And just watching Donnie Darko, which I hadn't seen in years, I was like, I know her. But it just was not <laughs> yeah. not clicking with me. I'm glad you brought that up. She's wonderful in this. And you mentioned Jason Schwartzman, but did you, did you know that on the side he was in a band? I don't know if he still is, but the band is called uh, Phantom Planet. No. And another another member of that band is in the film. It's Alice Greenwald who played the the bully character Seth. For real? Oh wow, mm-hmm. that's interesting. I did not come across it's, that. That's interesting. He's not really an actor beyond Donnie Darko that I know of. That might be the only thing he was ever in. Oh, okay. One, one, one of the very few things. So but, yeah, he did he did very well as, as that character that you love to hate. Yeah, absolutely. Oh. Uh, but then and then you have Seth Rogen as his Toady. So. Yeah. It's his very first ever feature role. I got to confess, uh, I am actively not a Seth Rogen fan. I yeah. actively dislike Seth Rogen. And I remember I'm like, yeah, of course, your your first line here would be right. like, just some juvenile <laughs> comment. <laughs> right. Oh, my gosh. Um, while we're talking about actors and appearances and stuff, the film obviously preceded Cabin in the Woods by about a dozen years, so I did not recall until this viewing uh, old uh, Fran Kranz steps out of Frank's car at the end after he runs over Gretchen. Um, you know what? the Who? the 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 guy. Oh gosh, now I'm blanking on his character's name. Fran Kranz is the actor, but he's the in Cabin in the Woods. He's the stoner who figures everything out. Um, is he the clown at the end of the, Darko? Yes, yeah. The the uh, oh. he's the clown that steps out of Frank's car. Yeah, uh, the the pa- he's credited here just as passenger um, in uh, huh. the the. I, and I saw him. I remember when I watched it, it pinged me, and I was like, I know that that looks like Fran Kranz. And then sure enough, uh, the uh, IMDb credits confirmed it for me. But yep, uh, it like doesn't even have a speaking line and doesn't even have a name for his character. But I was like, I know that guy. I know He's you. He's come a long way. He sure has. Um, so a couple more bits of trivia. Again, we can roundtable this if we want to. Um, so we've already mentioned the promotional material uh, heavily featured a crashing plane, and so that was that was pulled because of 9-11. And so the film really didn't take off until it hit DVD, where it built uh, this kind of cult following. But... Something that you both know, but the listeners don't. You got a little bit of a preview of it last week towards the tail end. So it was an active discussion as we were preparing for this episode as to whether or not we would discuss the theatrical release of Donnie Darko or if we would discuss the later released director's cut, uh, in air quotes that you can't see me do. Uh, The director's cut I had acquired 
some time ago, and I thought I had not seen it yet, but I was like, oh, yeah, well, let's cover the director's cut. This is kind of shaping up to be a director's cut year. We did the director's cut of Midsommar. We're uh, planning at some point to cover Dr. Sleep, which has uh, a really excellent director's cut uh, to that. So I'm like, oh, yeah, this could be the director's cut year. Um, Steve, you had first alerted me to the fact that the director's cut was yeah. not uh, highly favored in Donnie Darko circles. I believe I had messaged you both after I finished watching it, saying that I considered it to be an inferior film. I will now go on record as saying I actively dislike it. I do not think the director's cut is should be seen. I do not <laughs> like it. I do not care for it. I think it ruins, in many ways, a film that is otherwise evocative and captivating and uh, compelling in many ways, and it takes all of that and just slowly lets all of the air out of your favorite moments piece by piece and one by one, and I do not like it. I don't I don't care and, for the director's cut at all. Well, and to be fair, you know, Richard Kelly's career post-Donnie Darko notwithstanding, it seems that even he doesn't like it being referred to as the director's cut. Like, no, I, I don't doesn't. know exactly yeah. what sort of arrangements or, or studio stuff happened there, but to him now there might be a world where initially he did. And then it got such a poor reception. Like, no, nah, I'm good. I'm good. I'm good with the other one. You know? <laughs> no, 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 no. The first <laughs> one's fine. Uh, but at least according to the trivial bits, he, he distances himself from that, that, you know, title for it. Because most of the most of what the director's cut brings to it is it changes some of the soundtrack, which the soundtrack is one of the best things about this film. It changes some of the soundtrack. It extends most of the scenes. But Steve, something you and I were chatting about a little bit is the worst offense of the director's cut is it throws off the pacing. It's twenty minutes longer, but the the extended length is not the problem. The problem is the timing and the pacing of the major narrative beats is all off. It is completely out of sync in a way that makes an otherwise very compelling and propulsive narrative feel really plotting and really uh, just dreadfully slow in ways that would just baffled me. It is. It is. I don't think people should watch the quote unquote director's cut. But it is an interesting observational exercise in the power of editing and how profoundly oh, yeah. uh, trimming scenes down can dramatically impact the overall feel and sensibility of a film because it is yep. it's not great. Richard Kelly seems seems like a kitchen sink kind of director. He wants to yeah. just dump his brain into the movie and just put everything in there and keep it there so he can explain away oh, everything. Yeah. So there's no mistake about what he's intending. Yeah. Um, but then the, for this film, which is his first feature, the production company must've been like, okay, we need, we'd like to get you an editor. <laughs> Cause we, we have, we see what your vision could be. So yeah. let's sort of tailor it to what, what makes sense. And it's, <laughs> and it's kind of sad because like, I think you're I think you're spot on there Steve and it's kind of sad because like he made two films after this he made Southland Tales uh which I saw and thought was bananas and uh then he made a film called The Box based on a short story that I absolutely love and he made the weirdest possible movie you can make out of mm -hmm. a, a very simple and direct premise and then he has not made another film in 11 years like it's crazy like it right. it's like he made those three films and then just dropped off the planet, uh, he's still kind of kicking maybe, around, but maybe I was gonna say maybe he fell into a portal. You know, like it's, it's just, Ooh. you know what? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't, uh, I don't know. And he's like, "What's in the box?" You know, 
What's in that box? <laughs> that's um, all I got. Just, well, that's yeah, it. I look, I look back at what I scored uh, my star rating for Southland Tales. I gave it a half star. Out of oh, five. whoa. Yeah. You were generous. I do not I don't like even remember film. much about it because it was so all over the place. Yeah, I do not like that film. Both Southland Tales and The Box, I just did not. I did not get. I, I did not. Well, but y'all are, y'all are sort of identifying, and you know this may bridge into the actual content of the film, like sometimes these... Um, this, this phrase is not what I was going with this, but it makes me think of in, in pop music, you know, kind of the one hit wonder idea, which isn't to diminish the work, but it is to say what's interesting about something like Donnie Darko, especially cast against, or the theatrical cut of Donnie Darko, especially cast against Kelly's career in general. But, you know, sometimes you just have this perfect confluence of, you know, creative energy, creative team performers. I mean, you know, uh, I didn't look to know exactly what all Gyllenhaal had done before this, but you know this this is when his career starts gaining some steam, yes, and, and yes. you know, and he is fantastic in this he's role, amazing in this. and he's yeah. surrounded by other competent performers, and and maybe the pro- a problem with the quote unquote director's version, or at least a longer version, is you start to overthink what you're watching, whereas yeah. the more the more compact version, you're just kind of like. Oh wow! Because because what impressed me about rewatching this edition, the theatrical edition, is unless you know there's a flabbier version out there, it feels pretty tightly wound. You know, it, yeah. it feels pretty intentional and pretty. You know, I, I personally remember being in California with Reed watching this movie for the first time, and and yeah. kind of being yeah. at, as probably most people are at you know, in their early 20 somethings who end up watching a, this film or a film like it, your just mind gets kind of blown at the story possibilities of what can exist sure. in these films sometimes. So, you know, who knows is, is Rich Kayla talented or not, but ultimately I do think at least this cut of it kind of exists in that state of, okay, just all the pieces meshed except for the marketing and the timing. But sure, in terms right, of the right, film right. product, all the pieces mesh to create something pretty special. Yeah. Oh, I, I don't disagree. And I think it's, you know, even with a cult status, it is a bona fide, like people still talk about this movie and, yeah. and it has, it landed at number one for favorite horror films of this year amongst, you know, some he- more heavy hitting filmmakers uh, and perhaps more notable franchises. This still uh, ranks above the top. Um, Steve, I'm going to uh, pivot to you. Why don't we kick off with our general likes, dislikes segment? Uh, mention a couple of things you, you enjoy about this film. Well, again, I love the I love the cast. Uh, Jake Gyllenhaal was uh, was amazing in this movie. Mm-hmm. Opposite Patrick his Swayze. Yeah, oh, Patrick Swayze. <laughs> Opposite his He's real great. life sister, uh, Maggie Gyllenhaal. Oh yeah. yeah. Oh, that dinner table scene at the beginning. Oh love my that. gosh! <laughs> yes, absolutely. Well, and piggybacking on who we've already sang the sung the praises of, <clears throat> and I feel like a dope for forgetting Battlestar, but. Uh, possibly just the the difference in the settings of these two things is is and the time from seeing all of this you know it it kind of brain farted on me but there are some scenes in this where Mary McDonald just kills it my she's gosh. mesmerizing you oh know? my god I mean the, yes I think about she and the dad who I'm not trying to downplay that actor too I mean his I had to split this viewing because I've seen it multiple times in the past. And so it was more a refresh. I had to split this viewing over two sittings. Uh, the second sitting of which was sitting in a 
car pickup line for my kids. So, you know, it's, it's not the most conducive scenario for plugging in, but I was getting teary at the end when, when, yeah, you know, when yeah. the reset happens and, and you see the, the pan, the camera pans and you see the dad, I mean, like, I don't, y'all just reference his name. I don't have it in front of me, but he's fantastic. But specifically with Mary McDonald, the scene in the counseling session or not in a session, yes. but with the counselor, yes. she is so burdened and, oh, yeah. you know, some of this will echo back in themes as well, but she is so burdened and, 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 and delivers that subtextually so well, you know, like yes. whatever I think I, I, what I wrote down, but I don't know that I'm a hundred percent right here is the line, whatever will bring him some relief. Um, mm-hmm. you know, when mm-hmm. the, when the doctor is prescribing or, or suggesting some medication, but that coupled with the scene late in the film where the two of them have the back and forth, how does it feel to have a wacko for a, a son? Oh. She just says it. It feels wonderful. Like, the oh, one, yeah. So the one thing about the director's cut, which I didn't go back and look, uh, it might even be included as a bonus feature on the DVD, so you can ex- experience it that way. There is a scene. It's I think maybe the only scene in the director's cut that is a br- a whole brand new scene versus just mm-hmm. an extended scene. Right is after that moment you just described. Uh, she is taking the uh, sparkle motion to go and perform right. on Star Search. Um, he and his sister have a goodbye to them in the morning, and he hugs her, and they have a really sweet and very lovely huh. moment when he hugs her and says goodbye to her, and it feels, me knowing what transpires after that, it feels more um, weighty that I know they will never see each other again or at least not in that context and there's some there's a hint that maybe Donnie is already attuned to that truth um, in their goodbye and it's a really wonderful scene and like I said it it, it is literally the only thing about the director's cut that I enjoyed was getting to see that scene in the context and rhythm of the film that's the only thing Mm. uh, if I could take something away from the director's cut was is that individual little minute and a half uh, scene well, and I think the strength, though, and, and you know, Steve, you made a great point, like, editors matter. <laughs> and, yeah. you know, being able to suggest things, and, and this theatrical cut feels so direct, like a tube of, of spectral material emanating <laughs> directly from the film itself and straight through it. But I think so much is accomplished. So much is accomplished in the line and the delivery of the line it feels wonderful like yeah oh yeah so to to your point reed like that sounds like a lovely scene and probably is an execution but so much is done with that moment no absolutely that's all the that's all the way on the love end of the line right you know indeed yes that is the (laughs) definition of um Reed, what what's a couple of specific kind of likes for you? Or so dislikes? the the main thing for me, uh, really, all of my dislikes revolve around my experience of watching the director's cut. But pivoting to the theatrical cut of the film, we have not mentioned her yet, but I absolutely adore the actor Beth Grant, uh, who plays Miss Farmer. You know, sometimes <laughs> I doubt your commitment to Sparkle Motion. She is. A character, she, she is a character actor that shows up from time to time in TV shows, uh, frequently in either a two-line or non-speaking role. She has very few roles 
prominent roles outside of this. This is like her best opportunity to really have a lot of screen time, a really vital character to the narrative, and what she can kind of bring to things. And she is outstanding in this. She's a really outstanding performer. I, I love all of the different ways in which she makes Miss Farmer both fully realized and believable and somehow constantly ingratiating. Like you are always mad at her, which is um, is, is something that is actually a little bit difficult to pull off. And then in moments that would otherwise just be too absurd and somebody would play it like too much, one of my favorite moments is when... Uh, the timing here is so perfect, but they're like, what exactly did he say? And she's like, I'll tell you what he said. He asked me to forcibly insert the lifeline exercise card into my anus. <laughs> like, it, is, it is one of them. Like she is, again, I'm singing the praises of Beth Grant. She is a fantastic uh, performer, too rarely, in my opinion, given the opportunity to to really shine the way that she does here. And I think I think she's uh, she's really great in this. My, the the kind of last on my list of, of major specific likes, my favorite scene in the film, one of, if not my very favorite scene in the film, is the assembly where Patrick Swayze's character, who which we haven't really heavily sung this, the praises of Patrick Swayze, but he's outstanding in this film. When Patrick Swayze's character is giving the assembly and Donnie kind of calls him out, yeah. For the sham and psychobabble. I do want to mention, I know I'm beating up on the director's cut, but I do want to mention one of the things that was most obvious to me. If you'll recall in the theatrical cut, there's a very deliberate and quick clipped kind of thing. The girl asks a question like, what if I think, you know, my sister's eating too much or whatever. Right. And then it immediately cuts to like the next kid. It's like, people pick on me. Like, how do I keep people from picking on me? And then it immediately cuts after that to the kids, what do I want to be when I grow up? And Cunningham's like, ooh, that's a tough one. Guys, in the director's cut, every character is shown coming to the microphone <laughs> and coming to the stage. <laughs> every character is shown. Like, Cunningham calls them up to the stage. It watches them walk up. The next one comes up to the microphone. Uh. I mean, like, talk about taking a scene that crackles and just right. letting all the air out of it. But it. But in the theatrical cut, it's my favorite scene in the film when Donnie, like, he's like, right. that's some of the worst advice I've ever heard, you know, and starts, like, rattling off all of the things that the the students should be doing. So, yeah, it's, uh, yeah, again, it's one of my favorite scenes in the movie, but don't watch the director's cut. I think it's been said that uh, Donnie Darko is, like, a movie that just made, like, a whole generation of young people interested in independent film. Yes, huh. yes, absolutely, yeah. yeah. And that might have been true for me, too, because uh, this was around the time that I just went from a person who likes movies to calling, I would call myself a cinephile soon after that, where I was actively looking for great films to see all the movies on a list of great films. And But uh, I, was, I was aware of the, I know you took uh, style off of your uh, metric for uh, <laughs> when you went from David S. Pumpkins to the fog meter, yeah. but uh it's very stylistic movie. It is absolutely, very. absolutely, absolutely. In the editing and the cinematography. I looked up who was the cinematographer for Donnie Darko. Oh yeah, and he, he has done a lot of films. It's a person with a, a long filmography. I think his name is uh, Stephen Poster. Mm, okay, but, oh, that's that's me on the poster. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, he did Rocky Five among other things. Oh wow. Okay. And uh, did you ever hear of the movie um, The Boy Who Could Fly? Yeah. Yeah. He, oh, yeah. I, I yeah. saw him on, as the cinematographer for that, too. So that kind of makes sense. Interesting. Yeah. I do got to, Steve, I got to give you some 
shout out here real quick. So I'm the type of person who, if I go visit someone at their home, I'm observant of their, um, you know, kind of book collection and kind of what they display. And it just pinged with me that behind you is your copy of Donnie Darko sitting yeah. on your <laughs> uh, bookcase staring oh, at us. Oh, wow. So, Good eyes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's <laughs> awesome. Inspiration. Um, Yes, yes. So I, I can't even claim that in the moment to have some Donnie paraphernalia here. Um, you know, we've at least referenced. Um, I texted Reed yesterday, today. I can't remember. Uh, you just directly said this, Steve, about the stylistic nature of it. Like I, I do think it's unfortunate that to hear both of you describe the flabbier version does so much to undercut the strength of the, the, the theatrical edition. But yeah, having not seen that version, I can sort of rest a little bit and just kind of my only knowledge being that edition, but it's, it's so evocative. I love the mood. Yeah. I love the atmosphere. The, 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 it's funny even watching it this time, and this may just me be me conjecturing and kind of imposing something that was not intentional, but knowing that a it's set in the eighties and mm -hmm. b the way the film opens had this very kind of John Hughes type of energy to it. Yeah. Um, it's almost like you're, you're, you're buckling up for this insane version of Ferris Bueller's day off kind of thing, hmm. you know? Yeah. I could say just, that just from suburban, you know, kind of teenage energy to it. You know, John Hughes, who was highly popular in the 80s. Anyway, it just, it, for the first time ever, that kind of rung out to me. But this soundtrack, this soundtrack is so good. I've been listening oh, to Tears for Fears the last 24 hours just because <laughs> of this soundtrack. <laughs> it's so oh, it's so good. Head yeah. over heels, man. I love it. So that's... Yeah, one of the, thing, one of the first things I think of when I think of Donnie Darko is that the first song... Uh, the Echo and the Bunny Man? Yeah, The mm. Killing Moon. Oh, bunny yeah. Man. <laughs> uh -huh. Yeah, well that and that's very deliberate. The Killing Moon? Yeah. Yeah. Uh it was very deliberate that the that that band was chosen. I don't know about for that song, but but that Echo and the Bunny Man were on the soundtrack. It's not just the songs, but the score of the movie. That's yeah. uh, yes. Michael Andrews. Mm -hmm. um, and I think my favorite piece is uh when he's sitting in the theater and the Evil Dead that's is so on the Fog yeah. Cannon movie. Wonderful. Yeah. Uh, yep, exactly. The operatic kind of score over that. It's wonderful. And that whole sequence, so maybe this can pivot us a little bit into scares because I think one of the, but but I do want to mention before we leave likes, dislikes, it, it cannot be overemphasized, the power and impact, speaking of soundtrack, of the final montage sequence oh, with, so good. with Mad World, but not the Tears for Fears version of right. Mad World, but, but the cover by Gary Jules playing over top of it. Um, I would, this is a bold statement, the film evokes a lot and does a lot of good things along the way. I would venture to say that the reason it is so powerfully resonant to so many people is because of how impactful those final five minutes are. I mean, it is just absolutely mesmerizing, captivating. It is haunting. Uh, it is powerful in some of the things that you see the characters doing. So, uh, so yeah, I abs I absolutely love the final few of this minute, but but uh, of this movie. So, uh, but pivoting a little bit into scares, you mentioned Steve that that scene where they're watching Evil Dead. Frank, as as a character, for me on my list, 
Frank's creature design, yes. his presence, everything about him is some of the most frightening imagery of any film I've ever seen. It is still, almost 20 years on, incredibly affecting. Uh, Frank is a masterful creation. This this bunny, this distorted, twisted, yeah. skull-faced bunny. Um, and particularly in that scene where then he, he pulls off the mask and he's a person, but the person has clearly like had his eye shot out. Um, just everything about yeah. Frank is is really uh, quite alarming and and frightening to great effect. Yeah. I, I, actually, I think I thought it was scarier before he took the mask off. But yeah, yeah, uh, <laughs> no, absolutely. Before you know, before you know what he even is underneath, it's all a mystery. Yep, um, exactly. But yeah, that, I think Frank himself and the 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 lighting and the score behind him. Whenever you see, and that's that's one of the scariest things in the movie. If there's anything scary in the movie, well, yeah, I, lo- I I love. I mean, yes, I, I will agree that Frank is indelibly attached to. I mean, he's on the cover um, of every yeah. iteration of each edition. <laughs> this this goes it's it's likes and scares at the same time. One of the brilliant performance moments, I think, in the film is this now legendary dialogue back and forth of why are you wearing that stupid bunny suit? Why are you wearing that stupid man mm. suit? But specifically, <laughs> yeah. so this is in the film, in the theater, is Hall's face falls. Do you, did y'all catch this? Like mm. in the scene when, because, because Donnie doesn't look at Frank, right? He's looking at the movie screen and he just says, why are you wearing that stupid bunny suit? And he's got this big, dumb, teenagery grin on his face, like yeah. mm. being ironic and pokey. And then when Frank responds with, why are you wearing that stupid man suit? And his face just kind of falls from it. It's just this uh, great, great kind yeah. of creepy. I mean, so much. Like, I, I wrote down the um, the first audible wake up from Frank. Like, that's yeah. it's yeah. so good. I mean, that. There's so many really effective. Again, if you if you permit yourself to kind of re-enter your brain of 20 years ago and, and kind of engage afresh with the material, like the the moments where Donnie is pressing on the the barrier in, oh, the, yeah. in the kitchen, the you know, I think barrier, it's the kitchen yeah. or the closet or whatever. You might know be, that I always thought of it as the bathroom, but it, but it doesn't, oh yeah, you might be right. You might be right. Uh, yeah, you're right. Uh, in the bathroom. And Frank says, "I can do anything I want, and so can you." Um, yeah, yeah. Well, I uh, d- did. Anybody else have any scares before any addition? Well, scares, I guess, that don't involve Frank or that you know that aren't correlative to that. Uh, before we kind of dance into some deeper waters and uh, you know let the portal take us where it will. Forgetting where the like it it literally had been at least a decade since I'd seen it, and and while I knew the general beats, I had not remembered at least the abrupt and and jarring sound cue when the first the first time um the oh. jet engine falls into the house and you don't know what's happened i, yes. I jumped i jumped i, I was yeah. not remembering or prepared for when maggie gyllenhaal is leaning against the door and that jarring raucous noise you know kind of echoes through the room it's pretty alarming yeah oh absolutely all the, all the books jump off the shelf yeah yeah that's a great sequence. Like all of that, like the chandelier sort of like begins jumping up and down, and and you do not know what has happened. It's yeah, it's it's fantastic. 
That would be me. That sounds like it would probably be Nathan too. There, just jumping, up, jumping out of your chair after falling asleep. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yep. and uh, and initiating yourself into poop club. You know, like that. That yeah. was indeed a moment. <laughs> oh my gosh! Absolutely. That was that was hilarious. The, the scene where he's uh, watching the presidential debate. He's like. Tell him, George. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Caucus SOB. Well, the film, <laughs> the film just dives right in. If not the very first line, a very early line is Maggie Gyllenhaal like, you know, I'm voting for Dukakis. <laughs> and it's like, it's like, it, it's great because like this film, so I, I don't have a really cohesive thematic idea. In fact, Steve, in, in a moment, I'm going to invite you to kind of uh, share with us what you had on your mind for that. Um, mm-hmm. But as we mentioned in the top 10 list and, and teased it last week as well, the film is definitely an indictment of particular 80s sensibilities, which I find fascinating given that now we're in a glut of 80s nostalgia to where so many of these same things are kind of being um, praised. But some of the things that I wrote down that the film in is, is, uh, at least appears to be indicting are things like Reagan-era politics, uh, a hyper sense of opulence, uh, just with like uh, that scene where uh, he says a disrespectful thing to his teacher and then his mom just buys him a bunch of stuff, and mom and dad just buys him a bunch of stuff to his bedroom. A uh, bunch of obviously self-help gurus, uh, anxiety-driving sort of an ultra-conservative mindset, judgmental liberal psychobabble, and then uh, most of all like very binary and reductive kind of group think uh, patterns in people. There's just so many different things mm-hmm. that I feel like came to prominence during the 80s that this film appears on the surface to be directly opposing uh, or at least presenting some hypocritical undertones to the effects uh, of those things. And I found that very, very interesting. Mm-hmm. I don't have a big uh, thesis statement about any of that except just to say I find it very interesting the way this film engages some of yeah. those ideas um, you, you mentioned that it reminded you of uh, John Hughes uh, kind of settings was that because of the it was sort of a upper middle class uh, entirely white neighborhoods uh, I'm, I'm sure some of that was subconsciously ringing out to me but just sure. the you know teenagers on bikes and, and the you know, kind of something about the first three minutes um, yeah. had a Ferris Bueller-y kind of energy to me in the moment. Mm, yeah. Or, uh, yeah. Or even uh, Kevin from Home Alone. Yeah. <laughs> sure. I mean, they live in a big house with pillars out in front. And if you have pillars on your house, it always means you're doing well. Sure. And then he, the school in the movie is, is uh, it's like a parochial school, right? It's uh, It seems like it's like an evangelical school. Yeah. Yeah, that don't, aren't they all in uniforms? Am I yeah. am I making yes. that up? No, they're all in uniforms. Um, mm-hmm. Well, and it's funny too because I feel like there are more scenes that take place in and around that school than in most other films, even about school. Like, like I feel yeah. like there are more scenes revolving around the school as a place and as a central nexus for everything that's going on, uh, far more so than films that even take place at high school. Uh, most of the time, even high school related films. Most of the action takes place after class, and you know the class is just transitory. But a lot of things happen at the school, and a lot of a lot of things right. are taking place at the school, which again is uh, I find very interesting. Am I the only one? This is not thematic at all, but am I the only one who thought that was one really weird bulldog statue at that school? Oh yeah, yeah, strange. That's a really weird design on that right? statue. <laughs> 
Like, I don't remember ever hearing if they built that for the movie or if they found that somewhere. I don't know. Our, uh, if they found that somewhere. Seriously. I mean, our mine and Nathan's mutual alma mater, the mascot is a bulldog. and uh, No, no, no. The mascot is a running bulldog. Not oh. to be confused with oh. a oh. running oh. bulldog. A no. No, running bulldog. It's a, that's the the college mascot. Yes, yes our college yes. mascot. Yeah, it's running, running, and running, running. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> yes, that's so, totally what they were going for. Reed. Um. So, Steve, I do want to invite you. Uh, I think a, a, a bit earlier in the episode, you um uh, held back. Um. So, uh, I want to invite you to uh, tell me what you got going on. Yeah, I think a big theme in the, in the movie is uh, destiny and and choice. Uh, yeah the real life time travel or being able to see all of our possible paths and choices that lead to them. Mm, um, mm-hmm. That can, Donnie said that this itself, being able to see your path that, that that's a form of time travel. Um, this is his talk with, uh, with Dr. Monotoff played by Noah Wiley. Um, oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then he says, uh, well, t- to talk deeply about this is uh, controversial, uh, especially when we're, when we're, get far enough along in the conversation that we're getting into Christian doctrine. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Well, I say, well, so what? Let's talk, let's talk about it anyway. But, but the Donnie talking about that with it, with his teacher, uh, the teacher says, ah, oh, I can't, I'm going to have to stop the conversation. Uh, right. I could, right. I could lose my job. Yeah. Um, and it, it also came into play uh, when Donnie stood up in front of the, uh, the assembly and, he, and he's mm. talking to, mm. uh, talking back to uh, Patrick Swayze, Jim Cunningham, the uh, the guru yeah yeah what are you trying to sell more copies of your book uh, mm-hmm. uh so i gotta tell you this is doing a terrible job i don't, know, yeah, I don't remember yeah. the exact quote the worst but, advice uh, i've ever heard yeah worst advice yeah <laughs> i believe you're the antichrist yeah um, yeah well he's he's giving he's giving advice to the kids uh where they can be more proactive about their own decisions mm, um not uh, having yeah. to just rely on this uh fear love line and uh I don't know where exactly uh, Jim Cunningham might have been trying to lead them, <laughs> um, but they didn't, they weren't. He wasn't trying to. Uh, he wasn't going where Donnie was going, giving them good, solid advice on how they can take the initiative and, and right, lead themselves right. into a better place. Um, and I I don't remember if I heard it from you guys or if it was a different podcast I was listening to. Somebody it was probably said, us. Uh, if it was good, it was probably. Us. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody said, uh, you know. God helps those who help themselves. That's not actually in the Bible anywhere. Right. It's not. No. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it doesn't mean it's not good advice, right? That's um no. It's well and what's <laughs> what's interesting though is so what I found really fascinating about that whole assembly scene, and, and I love where you're going with this about this idea mm-hmm. of things that are predetermined, things that are um uh, planned ahead versus our own uh, integral choice and the power of our own choice. And the advice that Jim Cunningham, Patrick Swayze's character, is giving to them is all so abstract that it's not in any way practically applicable. It's not. You know, it's like there's that one scene where the the mom, Donnie Darko's mom, is standing talking to presumably another community mom and they're seeing a house and then suddenly she just bursts bursts out with so i realized that for so much of my life i've been living in fear or I've, you know i forget her exact line but it's it is such abstract psychobabble 
And I love also when Donnie kind of calls that out on the lifeline. Like you're trying one of uh, something that I've brought up several times on the show has become a very important element of my conversations in general is the ways in which we have a tendency to reduce things into binary pass, fail, yes, no, black, white, like we, we, it is either this or it is this other thing. And I love, as a product of that, the scene where Beth Grant's character is trying to get them to place an X on the lifeline, which is what we keep joking about. Are you on the fear spectrum or are you on the love spectrum? And Donnie says, like, this is denying the whole spectrum of human emotion. This is throwing everything away in favor of two admittedly opposite but very reductive ways to classify people and their choices and i found that to be really compelling because it feels like so much of what jim cunningham is trying to do and and i get a little frustrated with the ways in which um how do i how do i frame this um okay let me uh, let me say it this way it is easy as believers it's a very thin line between expressing a mystery and being far too abstract to be practically helpful. There's a very thin line between expressing something that is mysterious and we don't quite know how it works, but this is the the way in which you can follow and it will move along this path. And what Jim Cunningham in the movie is doing, which is basically breaking, oh, well, clearly this is a bad thing, so it's rooted in fear. And how do we get rid of fear? And 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 the the way on that video that where there's like I saw my ego reflection and now I see, you know like the, the, these words don't mean anything like they're just right. it is a it is just a sequence of words that don't have cohesive thought behind them and uh, and I feel like that that is something that we I say we as in believers can be so. Uh, I get frustrated sometimes. I'll say this and then I'll shut up and let other let both of you kind of respond or say what's on your heart and mind. I get frustrated sometimes when people speak in Christianese language and cannot have a real honest to God conversation about what those terms mean to them. That really frustrates me. It, it, it I'm not going to begrudge somebody not knowing how something works or not knowing what something means. Even I don't, I don't, that's not a problem, but I get really bothered when somebody just throws out language as a definitive sort of solution to a problem or as a definitive sort of uh, guide or answer, and then you challenge them even one iota of, well, what do you mean when you say that? And they can't articulate it for you because they haven't done the homework to think about how it plays out in their life or what it means to them. And uh, and so that that's just very frustrating to me. And I think that's Part in that way, I relate to Donnie Darko's character in that he is very fed up with all of that. I love it that, again, that assembly scene. He says, yeah, I'm really scared and I'm depressed. And, and he rattles off all the things that Jim accused him of. He said, yeah, I'm, I am really all of those things. And yet still calls out, but you're the effing Antichrist. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. And uh, so anyway, I... I just uh, yeah, wasn't there three great sins that Jim Cunningham said that are your temptations? Uh, yes, drugs, premarital sex, and what was the other one? Uh, was it smoking? Nathan, help me remember. What was? It? Uh, I, was I don't. I don't remember. I think it's. Dr- <laughs> it might be drinking drugs and premarital. I sex. I kept thinking like, think. what's the big deal? 
But Donnie was doing all Donnie was doing all of those things in the movie. Nathan's um, like, I call that Wednesday. <laughs> so, yeah. Wow. Um, I'm teasing. You know, I I felt a pretty different sort of thematic takeaway than than what y'all are describing. Like, I think all of what y'all are describing is there, but but sure. what was most resonant to me was a little different and. As a random insertion here, like uh, Steve, you mentioned Noah Wiley. Like one of the only things I will fault this movie on is the absolute contrivance of Donnie talking to his teacher, being like, "What do you know about time travel?" I'm like, "Oh, that's an odd question. Let's unpack that a little bit." Oh, by the way, at the end of the scene, oh, guess what? You know what? I've got this random tome yeah. in my satchel <laughs> that clearly, probably, is a little bit important and meaningful. You can have it, though. You know what I mean? It's just like, yes, uh, yes. that was super convenient. <laughs> well, I think that's part of the intention of Richard Kelly. Is like, there's a whole string of coincidences that, and and people, the like characters in his life that are giving him nudges on the way to his destiny. Mm. Sure. Mm-hmm. And I think, mm-hmm. I think that's like, I don't know if Richard Kelly just thinks he's being clever there. And, and a lot of the uh, young audience of the movie is like, yeah, that is clever. <laughs> <laughs> well, I love this. And, and, no, I think there's some validity to that. It, it just in the moment, this viewing, <laughs> it struck me as really funny. Like, what do you think about this like insane metaphysical idea? Well, as a matter of fact, here's Stephen Hawking uh-oh. and here's Roberta Sparrow. Who? <laughs> so, you know, the the things y'all are mentioned, I think, are all very present. But what really was resonant to me, and perhaps one of the reasons for this film's endurance, is kind of this, like, uh, set in the, the sort of dynamic of teenagers and parents, yes, or teenagers and adults, but also too, just kind of truthfulness and and honesty mm. and you know what so much of Donnie rails against is what he would describe or or I think you know kind of what he might articulate as just no one being truthful with him um, right right you know and 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 that's one reason I think the scene where mom says it feels wonderful is so powerful um, because that is. Yeah that is a truthful moment of, in that case, his mom acknowledging the, the challenge and burden that comes with the, the kind of things that make up who Donnie is, but that at the same time yeah. affirming and encouraging him in that, like, uh, you know, kind of in, in normal Hallmark movie parlance, I wouldn't trade it for the world type of idea, but right. you know, so, so what I was really kind of, one of you, I can't remember at this point, but and maybe both of you were talking about how the film lays out these real direct dichotomies, you know, love and fear and and you know who we are in secret versus who we are uh, kind of in public and and I even picked up on the uh, medication versus pop psychology coping mechanisms, right? Like the counselor right, right. wants to medicate him. Cunningham wants to, to, you know, kind of save the world through abstract pop psychology. Um, and, and none of these things achieve what they're after. And 
I think a lot, this is a couple, as I am prone to do, a couple of random insertions here, but I think a lot about our conversation on the show from the first chapter of It, the first film edition of oh, that. okay. And yeah. this, uh, like I think a lot about this in my day-to-day life of, of the ways we burden our youth to, to, to save us, yeah. um, mm, whether yeah. it's our literal children or the generations below us. And it's funny, maybe this was my own sort of hangups and whatever, but I listened recently to an interview uh, with Mark Golly or Galley. I'm not exactly sure how to pronounce his name, but he was uh, featured on why is this happening podcast. And um, Mark is the writer uh, previously editor in chief, but wrote uh, a rather blistering kind of editorial back in December of the administration and it Uh, it really for Christianity today. And it really, uh, the point of me bringing this up isn't actually that, but in the interview with Chris Hayes on why is this happening? He made some reference. He Mark made some reference to how encouraged he is by kids today. And Mm. this active, again, how much of this is truthful, faithful, Nathan inner life and how much is just, anger maybe both uh, i don't know but i got really angry i was like this has to stop uh mm. this this oh look at the kids they're really going to do great they're going to make something of the world and and i'm so tired of what can feel embedded in that of the we you know it is kind of tough for us as adults and we're not really doing anything we're all log jammed we're all screwing it all up <laughs> but but look at those teenagers they're really going to make something of things and so i feel that like i watched this movie this time and was like man the donnies of the world right now with the internet and its dark corners are so ill equipped to handle these elements that are happening in them and and mm. you know what donnie rails against in in large part and there's it's multifaceted but one of the things i think he rails against is this lack of truthfulness is this artifice you know to me read it's less an indictment of sort of 80s whatever as much as it's it's leaning on politics it's leaning on the political environment it's leaning on the adults of the world who are unwilling to look inwardly or below them and, and help up and, and why mom saying it's just wonderful is such a beautiful moment. And so, you know, Donnie rails it all is not right in the world. Yeah. Right. And, and, and in one of his sessions, he, he articulates this fear of, of dying alone. And, and aloneness in general. And I think one of a big takeaway for me from the film is this. I, I actually want to validate the Donnie's of the world and say, you're not wrong. You, you aren't crazy (laughs) for Mm. identifying an extreme dissonance in what we say and what we do. Mm. And, and what we say and how, if you actually follow what you say, helpful or not, that is. Um, that adults can be both heroes and hypocrites. Um, I do think that 
maturity and wisdom is learning to live with that tension, right? Like I'm empathetic to Adani, but I also know like, you know, if, if that person, if, if, if Adani Darko type character can, can be cared for and just, just wrapped in that wonderful mother love and can, mm. can, can journey forward, you know, making the road by walking, through whatever's next, they're going to reach this point of maturity that's able to hold intention that a Jim Cunningham, who is is a well-intentioned human. I, I don't watch this movie and think, what a fake asshole, right? I don't watch that and think that of Jim Cunningham. I think, you know, drank his own Kool-Aid, developed this pop psychology, but is well-intentioned, but is also extremely polarized in his inner self. And... Mm. I don't know exactly where I'm trying to land the plane here, but something that's kind of beautiful that happens in the film is you've got Donnie who's afraid of, of, of dying alone, of being alone and ultimately dying alone. And then how does the story end? He, he is the one who knits back the, the time stream in a real practical sense, but with the sentiment of, no longer exactly being afraid of of dying alone or being alone. He's, the, the final words he says of the film is, I just hope that when the world does come to an end, and hope itself is a signal of a lack of despair, right? Um, I just hope that when the world does come to an end, I can breathe a sigh of relief because there will be so much to look forward to. Mm. And that is such a dramatic change of character, change of intention that you know, for better or worse, he had to find on his own. I, I don't know. I, I think all I'm trying to get to here is simply to say to me, the take a takeaway, a major takeaway that happened for me is trying to hold in tension that the world and the adults in it are all equal parts, awful and beautiful, right? Mm. Like, and, and, and being able to figure out how to live in that dichotomy, which is really challenging. Um, you know, I mean, I, I feel like I'm brushing right up to it and, and it's, it's a little far afield of the film, but it, it is actually resonant with like Swayze's character. The, I've referenced him on the show before, I think more than once, you know, just learned this week, uh, made major headlines that Jean Vanier, who is the founder of, the Larsh community, um, his own sort of community did an investigation into some things posthumously. Like he passed away last year now. And what came out of this investigation, which has every reason to be believed as ethical and, and, and with integrity conducted with integrity revealed some terrible, terrible things. And, you know, and, and, and so I learned this, like, so when I say, I watched someone like Donnie wrestling with the tension of heroes and hypocrites. That's, that's coming from a real place of like, I'm trying to figure out how to hold these things in tension that great good is not completely vanquished by heinous wickedness, you know, mm -hmm. and, and trying to, trying to walk into that. I, I, I don't know. Anyway. So, well, uh, so, What's interesting is is I uh, I don't think I'll need you to unpack it 
any more than you than you already have, which I think is was pretty substantive. Um, I am I am interested by your take on Cunningham's character uh, because I have never seen him as anything other than with with one glaring exception, which I'll mention in a second. I have never seen him as anything other than a a representation of the deep abiding hypocrisy in hey i have your answers i've got it fixed sure. follow me do what do what i'm telling you to do and then uh everything will be okay with the one exception that in his in the the mad world montage that yep. takes place at the end uh huge 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 props to to swayze for a uh, a non-speaking moment of acting where he is clearly shattered by the truth of what he knows. And you can read any number of things into that, that he's scared people will find out, that he is scared he himself is a fraud, that, you know, whatever it is, the weight of facade has fallen from him, and now he is just left with all of the fear and devastation that that, that sits with him. But I am interested, like, it is interesting to me to hear you infuse so much compassion towards his character Um, because even though in that moment I recognize the vulnerability that character um, displays I always viewed him as a pretty direct link to hypocrisy I mean Donnie burns his house down to expose the the hidden secrets that he has been that he has been holding on to while telling everyone else how they should be living their life, and that he has uh, well, the answers for them, right? And I, I, one, I think, as a real kind of just academic answer to your question, I think the movie is about polarities and how or if we reconcile them. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, yes, if if the story of Cunningham was left at the image of him being taken in the cop car then i think there's a lot of validity and and actually i think your your take is valid i'm not even refuting that i yeah. just think the point of mad world in this film is one to bridge all of these people to one sentiment but yeah. part of that sentiment is you are you in all your mm-hmm. heinousness and all your helpfulness right. and i don't disagree that i think cunningham is positioned as a charlatan but I also think all I'm trying to do in, in, in making any sort of link to the real world here is simply to identify, does Cunningham have a den of terrible things? He does. Do, to lesser degrees, of course, all of us have these warring polarities that if people knew the depth of what we're capable of in our inner self, we right, experience right. deep and abiding and and, and burdensome shame, yes. And, and yeah, so I just think yeah. all I'm trying to articulate is simply, you know, it's it's the truthfulness that Adani, however abrasively he pursues it, is is kind of after. And and I think we'd all say that Donnie's actions is their value in sort of the knowledge of exposing someone who's parading as one thing over another. Yes. Is he justified in in that course of action to burn the man's house to the ground? I I, I don't know. I don't no, know. right, right. I, I guess all I'm saying is wrestling in the real with a person you valorize 
having the the most demonic of of hidden lives forces you to kind of wrestle with you know i can't just abandon it's too cynical to say well it, there's just no good here and so you kind of have right, to right sift through the the ashes literally you know to, yeah to figure that out. Yeah. I, don't, I don't know i don't know if that's a helpful well, response to what you're asking but no no i, I definitely think I, I i will tell you in more blunt terms and then we can maybe uh, uh move on from from that specific granularity um i agree wholeheartedly you have you have in your unpacking convinced me about jim cunningham the character and reconciling the polarities within himself that like uh, uh, I'll go back to something you said earlier that he's not ill-intentioned I think he he as a character is not producing any good in the world with his pop psychology that the actual product he's peddling is also seen by the film as I, sure. I hesitate to say yeah. worthless but it is categorically unhelpful um, and but but he himself as an individual is struggling to reconcile the public persona with the private demons that he's wrestling with. But I think also the film does not think very fondly of him in that it thinks so poorly of what he is saying and doing. So I think I would be, just to put my cards on the table, I think I would be a bit more on board with some of, you know, sort of the the uh, potential redemption of Jim Cunningham as a character if the film was more affirming of his love, fear, binary ideologies as they were. But I feel yeah. like the film is pretty antagonistic towards those presentations. Right, um, but, I, but I think that also in the spirit of that, though, it, this conversation is almost hurt by how good Swayze is in this role. Because I think the film yeah, is just yeah. positioning different avenues of... Um, coping right it's pop psychology it's um you know perhaps religion although the film isn't quite doesn't discuss have as much to say about that but it's pop psychology it's politics it's medicine you know like all these things the movie name checks but also dispenses with as means of wholeness right of of means of producing good fruit in the world that isn't ultimately just truthfulness anyway Um, what what do you think, Stephen? What do you what do you got what do you got boiling over there? I was thinking there aren't too many of the adult authority figures in the film that are shown in a very positive light. Maybe the only ones were the the two younger teachers, Noah Wiley and, and uh, Drew Barrymore. Yeah, right. Um, right. And then at, at certain times, Donnie's parents. Um, yes, I do think Donnie's parents slide through the film, at, even though there is occasional antagonism. In what's going on, I think they are viewed by the film as authentic and as gen- yeah. and as genuinely uh, loving, as we've already discussed, loving towards Donnie and authentic in their intentions behind him. Um, and and I do think I I think you're really onto something, Nathan, uh, with the film being interested in the reconciling of polarities and the. Um, you know the 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 bringing together of two potential opposites in a way that makes them somehow whole yeah. uh again um and i and you know time travel as is viewed in the film is this big loop back where it's all 
the the different polarities of when Donnie leaves the bedroom and survives, therefore, and when Donnie does not leave the bedroom and a jet engine takes his life. Um, mm-hmm. He doesn't actually travel through time. He only sends the engine through time, right? I believe that is. It's difficult to. It's difficult to understand yeah. what is happening <laughs> in that final moment. Um, I view because they talk so much. He and Noah Wiley's character about traveling through a portal and the fact that Donnie himself does not travel through a portal. I feel like there is. I agree. I feel like the jet engine itself is what is what travels that's that is what goes but somehow donnie's consciousness has to be connecting to his his laughing self in the bedroom like i think that when the portal opens up though whether or not a vessel goes through it um it it sends these uh deja vu memories back to the characters in right. the past right mm, yeah. yeah so even to even to himself that's why he's laughing at the end of the film and uh, realize, yeah. something that the the director's cut kind of spoiled the mystery for uh for me of but uh did in define in in far too trite a way a trite a literal way um, the Mad World sequence that we keep talking of, uh, it, the film literally says in text on the screen that these characters are waking up from the events they've just experienced as if from a dream. And so, so what? the yes, so the character, <laughs> the characters says as if from a dream. Yes, so so Mad Mad World, what's happening to each of them as they wake up is basically they are reviewing in their minds the events of the film but now they have awakened in the 28 days earlier version of themselves feeling like they've just awakened from a dream. And so Sh- each of them... Show me, show me, Richard, don't tell me. <laughs> right, ever, exactly. Did you ever see on the DVD that has these special features and one is like images from the official website of the movie back when it was first Oh my out gosh, there. I think I did see that back in the day, but I don't recall any of it from... And it had these like fake news articles about a couple of the characters and it was like what happened to them next after the oh. universe has been restored really and, uh, yeah what an uninteresting said, exploration tmi yeah i was gonna <laughs> it, say that is way too said, much information uh, dr monotov got in a car accident and died and oh my uh, gosh he had he had married uh dr pomeroy uh, drew barrymore and and uh, jim cunningham committed suicide wow but, oh my gosh okay well i'm glad you didn't put this into the movie too exactly <laughs> well you know what if they had asked him to revisit it he likely would have um yeah. <laughs> what we know about it so i so in, in the hopes to bring us to uh to a potential landing place um i do think there's some interesting things to to uh, nathan you've really given me a lot of food for thought in terms of the ways i've uh, you know like the theatrical cut is a film I will revisit because it's a it's a very affecting film, and it is something that I think uh, evokes a tremendous amount of thought. And I really love what you're scratching at, particularly with some subjects that have been on my mind recently about reconciling binaries. Um, that uh, that I think, in viewed in the light of the film, is, is tremendous food for thought. Um, and uh, I'm just here to feed you, Reed. <laughs> feed me, Seymour. Um, <laughs> So, <laughs> oh my gosh! Oh my gosh! Um, so, uh, so Steve, I'll invite you if you have any any further thoughts to to express about that. I I, I just want to close my thing before I pivot over to you, and then we can maybe go to the fog meter of 
man, Nathan, you've got my brain going on on the mission that we have to be ambassadors of reconciliation. And, uh, you know, that I don't know that I would classify that as specifically superheroic work. But I think sometimes even we in the midst of wrestling with the, some of the things that Donnie Darko's character is trying to wrestle with and figure out might find ourselves in unusually astute positions to be able to reconcile things. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's, um, it's fascinating to consider those, those kinds of, uh, notes. Steve, you got any sort of final sentiments to send us into the fog meter? It's okay if you don't, but if you do, I welcome you to share them Um, now. I think there was a, there was a theme that came up a few times during the movie. And I think I, I commented on a little bit before how there's institutions in our world, the, the church and, Mm -hmm. uh, and the the school and the movie. I mean, they had a very strict uh, curriculum, and and, right. and Drew Drew Barrymore's character had she was fired during the movie, yeah, because yeah. she was uh, she had her own curriculum, or or she just she had she wanted to put a little bit of herself in, into the classroom with right. this, this book, The Destructors from Graham Greene, not Lauren Greene, um, <laughs> not Bonanza, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Um, but in, in the in the movie, and sometimes we see this in real life, uh, it seemed like there was no room for diversity of thought or method. And right. it, was like, mm. it was like the majority rules or mob rule in this town. And you remember the PTA meeting? Uh, um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Donnie's mother spoke out, but she seemed like she was the only one sort of uh, speaking out to authority when uh, Kitty was shouting people down. Uh, yeah. Can we can we be open to other methodologies and not be so quick to usher new opinions out the door, or is it all fear versus love? Um, mm, mm. I think I've seen that there are there's Protestant denominations of the church um, these days, and there are congregations that that split when members disagree on principles yes. and philosophies yes. and how they interpret scripture. Mm-hmm. Um, I think while it's good that uh, people are able to worship as they choose, and sometimes they might be happier after the split, but I think it's still it's still sad that this has to happen, and it ends relationships between people who go on one side or the other mm. of these splits. Yeah, I mean, wouldn't it be nicer if we could just uh, have a, have a discussion and feel like we're free to uh, talk about our our different viewpoints, and then the discussion ends, and we're still friends. Yeah. Well, again, it comes back to that reconciling opposites, you know, like like bringing Mm -hmm. bringing two things together and mending what has has been sort of uh, ripped apart. And we definitely live in a moment, uh, maybe have been for 20 years based on this uh, this film and when it came out, uh, living in a moment of uh, where it is very, very difficult. It is hard work to bridge the polarities to to bring everything together in a way that is reconciliatory and, uh, and is, is healing and, and wholesome. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I, th- uh, I think, uh, that's a good place to end it, a good place to resolve it and pivot us into the, uh, the notorious, notorious, <laughs> um, fog meter, um, our very specific metric of fear and God. Um, uh, and unpack this very briefly for us and then we'll, uh, invite, uh, our new guests to, deliver his ratings into it. So fear, we measure these films on fear and God, their scares and their substance. I'm going to go first, uh, and uh, I'm going to rank the fear measurement on Donnie Darko. Man, I tell you, 
the film is is evocative of some things and not completely nightmarish, but the frank imagery alone would be enough to garner at least six points. So for the ways in which that is used, I'm going to pivot all the way up from there to an eight. My fear measurement is an eight for Donnie Darko. Wow. Frank, Frank is freaky. Look, Frank is a freaky, freaky character. Steve, what would you give it for fear? I agree that he's freaky, but I wouldn't say is that scary. So I, th- I would give it a four out of ten. All right. Yeah, it's more of a sci-fi freaky to me, but not a horror kind of freaky. So. I can I can get that. Nathan, what you thinking? Yeah. It's funny. Before Reed said his, I had one in mind, and then uh, Steve said his. So I think I'm going to stick with my original and split the difference here and uh, go with a six. I think I, I I do think Frank has a real unsettling vibe to him, but I think it's that unsettling vibe coupled with the just general atmospheric an evocative sort of production design that, that yeah. really kind yeah. of sets a stamp here. Um, so yeah, I think I'm going to go six. Awesome. Uh, Nathan, what would you say for the God meter? I thought like that's hard because it sounds like, <laughs> it sounds like Richard Kelly doesn't know what he's doing or what he has. Um, <laughs> he does. So uh, I, I do think whether it's performance or the cut or both, I do think it invites, I mean, I still remember being just sort of mesmerized the first go around seeing this. And and I don't think all of that is lost. And in fact, a lot of it remained at least for this uh, viewing now, 20 years later. And um, I think there's a lot bubbling there. uh, However, well or not, they know what it is. So I'm going to, I'm going to go with a seven. I mean, that, all right. That feels, feels fair to what what i sense in there yeah steve what about you i think uh so much theme can be taken out of donnie darko uh the god with the science uh the destiny part of it the the choice or free will yeah taking the initiative to uh implement god's path um mm. Um, there's a lot to think about and discuss and explore, so I give it a, a nine. A nine nice. Out of 10. Nice. nice. Uh, well, as Nathan did for uh, you and myself, I think I'm going to split the difference there. I'm going to land at an eight uh, for this because I feel like it is interested in some very interesting things. I think uh, it is it is becoming more and more obvious that Richard Kelly didn't quite know exactly how he wanted to um, uh, land that plane, uh, no pun intended, but, um, I, but yeah, I think there's some vastly interesting things, uh, and they're explored in an incredibly creative way. So, uh, so I give that an eight and that means that we give Donnie Darko directed by Richard Kelly, a seven out of 10 on the fog meter, uh, which is, uh, amazingly becoming a more and more popular metric. I'm noticing over these last few, uh, weeks, fog meter used we to be, we couldn't get away from it with David pumpkins. No, I know. It's coming back. I know. It was always <laughs> a seven like every single time on David pumpkins. But I think the more pressing question, um, is, uh, would you, and I'm going to go to you first, Steve, would you recommend Donnie Darko to our listeners? Absolutely. I mean, especially if you like to try to solve a puzzle. Mm. And there's, this movie is a a puzzle, if nothing else. Uh, there's so many uh, YouTube videos and other <laughs> podcasts out there that they don't even get get into theme much. They just talk about what does it mean and uh, uh, what does the ending mean. And, uh, yeah. But uh, there's a 
it's a jumping off point for both science and philosophy plus the filmmaking style and craft it's uh yeah it's a crash course uh, like i said and uh it's so rewatchable i don't know how many times i've seen this movie over the years mm, uh, yeah maybe yeah. over over 20 times uh, but but it's not perfect uh but but i would definitely recommend it to the the fog listeners awesome what about for you nathan yeah, I mean, I have the blissful ignorance of not having partaken of the the flabby cut, if we can call it that. And um, so, you know, just basing solely on the theatrical edition, I, I think it's a, a no brainer, uh, e- easy, easy recommend. Yeah, I am right there with you on the on the theatrical cut. The theatrical cut is an easy recommendation. I think it's a, a captivating and fascinating viewing experience. Cannot compel our listeners enough to stay away <laughs> from the director's cut. Stay away from it. Don't bother. Uh, do not even out of curiosity uh, waste your extra 20 minutes of viewing time. Just watch the theatrical cut and enjoy uh, this very evocative little film. So There's also a, there's also a sequel that I've heard to stay away from, too. Oh, I yeah. Yes, <laughs> I have heard. Darko? S. Darko and yeah, is it no, the it's the same actress playing her too. Yes, in f- you know she's the actress who played Samara on the, in the uh, the ring. Whoa, is she? Oh wow, I did yeah. not know that. Wow, that's interesting. Yeah, Davy Chase. Wow, that's crazy. Not, not in the sequels unless unless it's the archive f- footage from the original. Wow. But, yep. So, in fairness to Richard Kelly, he uh, completely has disavowed the sequel and has affirmed several yeah. times that he had, <laughs> that he had nothing to do with it, which uh, okay. <laughs> but uh, uh, so we're going to wind this down. Uh, Steve, we really, really appreciate you being here. Thank you for uh, all that you do for the fear of God community, even outside of the pod. And thanks for joining the conversation with us here uh, next week, listeners. So as of this launch, 2002 is closed, and next week we want you to prepare yourself. Seven days later, we will be having a conversation about Danny Boyle's film, 28 Days Later. So so excited. So we are finally getting here. We've kind of tap danced around talking about this film in a number of contexts several times, so we are finally getting here. Next week, we are covering Danny Boyle's 28 days later seek it out and meet us back here next week and we will be counting down your top 10 favorite horror films of 2002 with an extended conversation about that film um steve thank you so much again for joining us it's a pleasure pleasure. to have you Uh, thank you so much nathan thank you as always for having this conversation with me and listeners uh as we say every single time the fear of god is the beginning of wisdom but not the end of the conversation and in that spirit we encourage you to fear nothing else and be on your way rejoicing we'll see you next week guys see you guys the fear of god is the beginning of wisdom but not the end of the conversation and you can continue the conversation in a variety of ways you can start by visiting the fear of god podcast.com for all the latest news and episodes or for merchandise and to contact us directly you can follow us on Twitter at The Fear of God, on Instagram at Fear of God Podcast, or join the Facebook Fear of God discussion group. Special thanks to Jacob Hunt of JacobHuntComics.com for our artwork, to Lee Wright, who helped me read Lackey write our theme music, and to Tyler Smith at MoreThanOneLesson.com for making our show possible. Lastly, be sure to subscribe to us on your podcast platform of choice, and if you listen to us through iTunes, we would greatly appreciate a rating and a review. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next week. I think you will have a lot of fun doing is go to the fear of... Bo- fear. Blah, 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 blah. <laughs>
Um, 